0: So, 1 Samuel 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men in town were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang... Saul has slain his thousands, and David's his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul, He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns." In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mehalah. Now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may become a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king, so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy The rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known.
1: I think I'm stuck with that on. I've put the headset on before I took this off, so I'm stuck with it on. Uh, well, it's good to be here today. Um, I don't know uh, if you enjoyed that video hearing from Joe. I, I love what's going on at youth at the moment. They're so big now that they're actually thinking of moving here to Lampton High School on a Friday or they're trying to work out some kind of arrangement. Uh, I think that would fit really well because one of the things that I noticed as I was daydreaming, not that I daydream in church, but I was daydreaming, and there's a ball, there's a yellow ball just up there. Can you see it? Everyone see it? The yellow ball just just up in the rafters there, and uh, I, I thought, well, our youth can actually contribute to this beautiful, beautiful building if they came and met here. Now I don't know if you, who's read all of 1 Samuel 18 to 26 this week. Has anyone actually done that? Did anyone listen to it? We've got one over there. Yes. Okay. Make sure you're doing this because this is a wonderful part of the Bible. James is, yes, James is listening to it, fantastic. This is a wonderful part of the Bible and frankly, one of the strangest parts of the Bible as we just read, all that whole thing with foreskins and stuff like that, there's more of that to be had as we roll on through the rest of these chapters. Um, But basically, these eight chapters that we're going to be looking at today, 18 to 26, they could be classified as Saul versus David, right? and it's really just a game of cat and mouse between Saul and David. And I actually wonder whether the TV series, you remember Tom and Jerry and Roadrunner, who used to watch them all the time? I used to love watching Tom and Jerry and Roadrunner and it was so predictable but super fun to watch, you know, Tom would chase Jerry and Jerry would get away and uh uh, Wiley Coyote would chase the roadrunner and roadrunner would get away. And it was so predictable, but it was just enjoyable, right? That is 1 Samuel 18 to 26, Tom and Jerry Roadrunner kind of scenario going on here, where, where Saul is Tom or Wiley Coyote and, and David is Jerry or Roadrunner. They're constant he's constantly on the run. And then at every point he evades Saul and his pursuers. Just have a look in this chapter, how many times Saul tries to kill David. If this wasn't real life, it would actually be comical. Have a look in verse 10 there. We see the first instance is Saul hurls a spear at David. While David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall... But David eluded him twice. In verse 17, David Saul tries to use his daughter as bait to kind of have David killed. And so it says there, Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merib. I'll give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. This is not good parenting, dads. Don't do this to your daughters. In verse 25, it says, uh, because that plan had failed, right? He plays this whole foreskin game with David. See how many foreskins you can collect for me, David. Uh, and so he says, the price is 100. David goes above and beyond and he collects 200. But this is what it says there in verse 25 say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than 100 Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Why? Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Another murder attempt. In verse 1 of chapter 19, come over to chapter 19, you get uh, uh, Saul actually orders Jonathan and his servants, in verse 1 there, to kill David. Okay, they refuse to do so, but that's what happens. In verse 10, you've got another spear incident. Okay, so again, David probably should stop playing the liar in front of Saul because it says in verse 9, while David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And it says, that night David made good his escape. And so David escapes at that point and he goes off to this place called Ramah and uh, Saul, at that point in verse 11, he sends his henchmen to kind of go and kill David, to hunt him down as he flees to Ramah. And then when that doesn't work what he does is he sends three companies of soldiers off to Rama to kill David and then when that doesn't work he goes himself he's like no one can do this job for me I'll go and do the job myself and so he heads off to Rama to arrest him as well and Saul's ploy was to have him killed to kill him right and then in chapter 20 which we're not going to look at in depth today but Saul's ploy uh, was to hold this big feast, he holds this big gathering, he invites a whole b- bunch of people over, he invites David to come to this big gathering and then David's been given the nod by Jonathan that Saul's trying to kill him and so he says, well, I won't go to the gathering, smart move. And then Saul gets mad when David doesn't show up and he tries to kill his son, Jonathan. So, have a look there in verse uh, 32. This is what Jonathan says. He says, Why should he be put to death? Chapter 20, we are. Chapter 20, verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Now, how awkward is that? You know that moment when you're at someone's house for dinner? and then they just yell at the kids and you're like, should I be here? I'm just going to stand over here. And you try and get out of the way and let the kind of discipline thing take place without getting involved at all, without judging and all that sort of stuff. Imagine being at this dinner party and all of a sudden, dad gets up and throws a spear at his son. That is hectic. And then chapters 22 to 26, is all about David running away from Saul around Israel and Saul is pursuing him. So, what the heck is this all about? What is the, these chapters about? What is this game of cat and mouse all about? Well, firstly, let's think about context. Where are we up to in the book of Samuel? I've drawn this wonderful diagram. I actually asked our comms guy to do one and uh, this is what he came up, came up with. Now that's not what he came up with, that's what I did because he didn't have time to do it. Uh, but you see there are chapters 1 to 7 of, of 1 Samuel, you've got Hannah's song and so the big theme we saw there in chapter 2 was humility and that was all introduced to us there. And then in chapters 4 to 7, you've got Israel versus the Philistines or Yahweh versus Dagon, their God Dagon. And then in chapters 8 to 31, what we have is the rise of King David and the rise and fall of King Saul. And these chapters, 18 to 26, mean that we're right in the middle of that. We're right at the intersection where David has already been anointed as the king of Israel. We saw that last week in chapter 16. We saw last week that he then stepped in as the champion of Israel. Remember, David unpacked that, Dave unpacked that for us last week. The champion of Israel to lead God's people to victory but he hasn't taken his throne, so he's anointed, he's the champion of Israel, but he hasn't taken the throne. And so, whilst Saul is alive, Saul remains the king of Israel. And so, what happens in these chapters, is all in that crossover period. David is the anointed king, but he's not yet the king. Saul is the king, but his leadership at this point is being challenged. And what we see during this crossover period is we see God behind the scenes, God behind the scenes exalting His King. And that's exactly what Hannah sang would happen, right? The first thing we need to see about this is this is actually the fulfilment of Hannah's song right back in chapter 2. God is exalting the humble, David, and He's bringing down the proud, Saul. So, remember in chapter 2, Hannah sings this, he says, "'It's not by strength that one prevails. "'Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. "'The Most High will thunder from heaven. "'The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. "'He will give, him, he will give strength to his king "'and exalt the horn of his anointed.'" And so, that's exactly what's happening in these chapters. God is giving strength to his king. God is exalting the horn of his anointed, David. David. And we see this shift take place from Saul to David. God is exalting his king and humbling Saul. And we see it particularly in chapters 18 to 19. So come back with me to the beginning of chapter 18 and we see this first shift in a covenant that David actually sets up with his good friend Jonathan. 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now what's going on here? Well, Jonathan is Saul's son. He is the current heir to the throne. And he makes this covenant, this agreement with David. Now, what the details of the the covenant are, they they can be seen in in what Jonathan gives to David. So, he takes off his robe, he gives it to David, he gives him his tunic, gives him his sword, he gives him his bow, he gives him his belt. And this is not just a wardrobe exchange. This isn't just David getting the hand-me-downs from Jonathan or anything like that. But what Jonathan is doing here is he's actually handing the kingship over to David. So, think about what Jonathan's wearing. He's wearing clothes that signify that he is the prince. His robe, his tunic, his sword, they all signify his position as the crown prince and now he's in this covenant, this agreement, he's handing them over to David. Essentially, he's transferring the right of succession to David. And so, this is a really significant moment between friends, Jonathan has enormous respect and adoration for for David, but most importantly, this is a moment for the Kingdom of Israel, this is another sign that David is God's true King. And so, we see this favour bestowed on David and then secondly, we see his favour amongst the soldiers in verse 5, have a look there, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that God gave him high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So, the soldiers and the officers, they love David and, and, and he's this mighty warrior, he's, he's won favour with the army of Israel as well as with Jonathan now and then finally, you see that the women of Israel are on his side too, which makes sense given the number of times that Dave showed us last week how good-looking David really was uh, in chapter 16 and 17. But they're they're not actually singing at this point about David's looks. They're singing about his victories. So have a look there in verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels, I love that word, timbrels and liars, what is a timbrel? And they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So David, right, chapter 16, he's anointed the king, chapter 17, he steps in as the champion of Israel, chapter 18, Jonathan hands over the right of succession to David His armies are on his side, the women are on his side. God is exalting his king here. And this is where the trouble begins. Saul becomes angry and jealous and frustrated. Verse 8, have a look. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with ten thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, at one level, you can understand this, right? Leaders often struggle with anger and jealousy and frustration when their younger and more talented counterparts start to receive accolades that they think they should have. This happens all the time. This is a very human response I imagine, you know, Greg Lee really struggles with this, having me on his staff team. No, not actually. He's never tried to kill me though, which is a good thing. But this is a very human response from Saul. But from this point onwards, we actually see that God is in this as well. We begin to see that that God is actually making things happen here. So in verse 10, have a look there in verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. See what's going on? God is humbling the proud, and exalting his king, his humble king. In verse 28, you see the hand of God in this again. So, have a look down in verse 28. It says, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michal, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. So, in this intersection between Saul's demise and David's rise... We see God is at work. God is exalting his king. 1 Samuel 2, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's what's going on here. This is the fulfilment of Hannah's song. And what we see is that through this crossover period where David is just, he's waiting to take his seat on the throne, God is not just exalting the king, but he's protecting the king. Now, we see this particularly in chapter 19 and what we see in this chapter and beyond is that God protects his king through ordinary human means and he protects the king through miraculous intervention. So, let's have a look at chapter 19, verse 1. In this, in this chapter, in chapter 19, we see Jonathan actually warns David that his father is about to kill him and so then he goes and he advocates for David to his father. So this is what it says, verse 1, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the, the attendants to kill David but Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you, be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. So he has this wonderful friend, Saul, uh, Jonathan, his friend, Saul's son. And God uses Jonathan to protect David. Isn't that beautiful? The way that God is at work through his friend. Second, God uses Michal, Saul's daughter, and now David's wife, to protect him as well. This is the wife, as we saw before, that yielded the price of 104 skins, and even though she was kind of the prize for that battle, she loves him deeply, which infuriates Saul, and she protects him as well. Have a look in chapter 19, verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it, And to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. So isn't this ironic? So far we've got Saul's son and now Saul's daughter on David's side and they are being used by God as God's instrument for protection for David. And then finally, in chapter 19, God intervenes miraculously at this point to protect His king. Have a look in chapter 19, verse 18. When David fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So, he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it and he sent more men and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern of Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in, Saul, in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul too also among the prophets? <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? This is supposed to be funny. Right? God steps in and he intervenes by the work of his Holy Spirit, and he causes the soldiers, three lots of soldiers, to just start prophesying. And they get waylaid, and they they stop pursuing David at that point. And they're there, they're there to kill David, but instead they begin to speak the Word of God. And then Saul himself actually heads off to, to Naoth to get the job done himself, and then God steps in and the Holy Spirit comes on Saul, and he prophesies, and then he lays naked all day and all night. It's actually ridiculous, when you think about it. This is ridiculous. And the point is that God protects His King however He wants, and whenever He wants. Nothing is going to stand in the way of God's plans for David. He can use Saul's daughter, he can use Saul's son, he can make David strip down, naked and start prophesying all day and all night. God is David's deliverer. Don't you love the way, all the different ways that God is involved here in protecting his king? Now at this point, we want to read ourselves into the story, don't we? We want to start looking for signs that God is for us in certain endeavours and in certain circumstances. But it's important we remember where we are in salvation history. This is is God's king and, and it's not just any king. David actually becomes the pattern or the measure for kingship from here on in. And all the other kings of Israel end up being measured off David. And so God is ensuring He is protecting his king, making sure that his king makes it to the throne. And the other thing we need to remember is that God is not just protecting David. He is keeping his promise to Israel. Remember what God said to Saul back in chapter 13? Chapter 13, it says this, Saul, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you, If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man, David, after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. See, God is actually, by protecting his king, he's keeping his promise to Israel. And nothing, nothing will stand in the way. Of God's plans for his people. And so for us, there are no guarantees that God will provide the same kind of protection for us. We can't just kind of read ourselves into David's story here, but we can know David's God. We can know a God who is powerful, which means it's worth praying. And He does and He can answer our prayers. A God who is used in everyday circumstances, He uses everyday circumstances to bring about our protection in ways we can't even see. A God who can intervene miraculously if He chooses, but knowing that He won't always choose to. But most importantly, we know a God who will not allow His promises to be thwarted. We can know that in Jesus, we are safe eternally. We are kept for eternity. See, we have this this greater protection. And the greater protection is actually in our salvation. Remember what Paul says in Romans? In Romans he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And friends, that's the kind of assurance we need in life. Assurance that we're safe, not just for this world, but for beyond the grave. Safe, kept, for eternity. And one of the things I think we see here in 1 Samuel as I mentioned before, is that David's kind of living in this weird time. It's a weird time for David. David has been anointed the king of Israel but he's not yet the king of Israel. He is the king but at the same time he's not the king. And one of the questions we have to ask is, well, what was life like for David during these years? He knew that he had been anointed the king but was he aware of God's hand of protection over him in order to give him the kingdom? Because if you think about it, we can see it, because we've got the Bible to read now and we can look back on those events and see that God was in those things, but could David see it, in his hardship and and, and actually recognise that God was looking after him? Because his hardship is real, right? David has no real home during this time, Saul is chasing him all over the Kingdom of Israel. And it doesn't end in chapter 19 or throughout chapters 22 or through 26. The game of cat and mouse continues all over Israel, hiding in caves, living in the wilderness, being pursued by armies. When you think about it, this is no life for a king. This is no life for the heir to the throne. So where is David's head at in all of this? How is he responding to God? Well, come with me to chapter 24. I want to show you one instance, chapter 24. The context here is that Saul is pursuing David. David and his men, they're hiding at the back of a cave. Saul has gone into the cave to relieve himself. David takes the opportunity to cut off the corner of Saul's robe, just to let him know that he was there and that he could have taken the kingdom at that time if he wanted to. And this is what he says. My Lord, the King. So he's speaking to Saul at this point. My Lord, the King. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on on my Lord because He is the Lord's anointed. See, my Father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the King of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Now, imagine being Saul in that instance. Thankfully, he had already relieved himself, otherwise he may have needed to change his underpants. And David rehearses for Saul what we already know. He rehearses God's providence. He says, you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands. He he rehearses the opportunity that was before him Some urged me to kill you, he says, but I spared you. And then we see David's trust in the Lord. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. See, what do we see here in David's life? Well, we see a man who is trusting trusting God in the midst of adversity. He trusts in the Lord's deliverance. And you see the same thing when you get to the Psalms. In the Psalms, there are a handful of Psalms that are actually specifically attributed to David during this whole period. So if you come back to Psalm 57 with me, we're going to finish there, Psalm 57. Chris and Beck read it for us earlier. It it actually starts with this, this little introduction. It says, for the director of music... To the tune of "Do Not Destroy," I don't know that tune, but maybe Lockie Jones does. Uh, of David, a mickdam when he when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Okay, so this psalm is actually written while David is taking David is taking refuge in a cave. Maybe the cave that we just read about, but he's taking refuge in a cage cave, cave, cage, cave, and he's constantly being pursued at this point. And this is what he cries out. He cries out, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me. Rebuking those who hotly pursue me, God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So you see, David, in this strange time, between his anointing and being seated on the throne, he's suffering. And yet in the, in the midst of his suffering and turmoil, he takes refuge in God. In his suffering, he cries out, Be exalted, O God. Where would your lips be at this point? What would you be seeing? In my terrible suffering this week, which I cannot even remember the cause of, I just know that it threw me into... a some kind of funky, grumpy couple of days on Thursday and Friday, I did not praise God in the way that David praises Him. In fact, it would be true to say that at those moments, I actually took my eyes off God and they were just on myself. And we've all done that to some extent, haven't we? But David cries out, Be exalted, O God. But here's the thing, right, this suffering before the glory of being made finally, fully the King, this profound trust that He has in the Lord in the midst of this suffering, and, and, and this whole now but not yet experience, it's actually just a shadow of Jesus, our King. David here is pointing to Jesus. And so when you pick up the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it reads a lot like these chapters of 1 Samuel. The king has come in the person of Jesus and if you like, he's anointed at his baptism but nobody recognises him as the king. The demons cry out, they say, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? There's blind men who can't see him but they cry out, son of David. They say, have mercy on us. And then Jesus performs miracles and wonders that point to the crowds and to the disciples that He is the King, He is the Messiah, He is actually the Promised One, He's the one they've been looking forward to and yet His kingship is not yet fully realised. He never lived in glory, He lived in humility and weakness. He said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head that's Jesus talking about himself. Now you could read that back into David's experience in the wilderness, couldn't you? No place to rest his head, running from town to town, living in caves, living in the wilderness, being pursued by his enemies. David's experience as the now but not yet king points forward to Jesus' life on earth, the true king who had no place to rest his head. And David's suffering at the hands of his enemy is but a mere shadow that points forward to the suffering that Jesus experienced at the hands of his enemies. As he finally gives himself over according to the will of the Father, and he's whipped, and he's beaten, and he's strung up on the cross, and he bleeds for the sake of humanity, for the forgiveness of humankind. At that point, Jesus is praying Psalm 57. At that point, Jesus prays Psalm 57 even more earnestly than David did. He says, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. And then finally, God raises him from the dead and exalts him to the seat of glory at his right hand and he gives him the name that is above every name. But Psalm 57 is the psalm of Jesus, the suffering king. And so we have to ask, if this is the shape of David's life, if this is the shape of Jesus' life, what do we expect in our life? we live in this now but not yet too, don't we? Jesus has saved us but we've not yet seen that salvation fully and in the meantime we follow a king who suffered. Which means we oughtn't be surprised when trials come our way and they are coming and they have come. Before our brother in Christ Warren, went down to Sydney, he was reflecting on a number of things that have taken place just around our congregation. Four or five different instances of rubbish things that have happened in the last month or so. And he said, what does this all mean? What does this all mean? I didn't have an answer for him at the time. But I think the answer that I would say to him now is we want to we pray Psalm 57. We want to pray Psalm 57, not as David, who's hiding in the caves and facing physical enemies, not as Jesus, who is in the end put to death by his enemies, but as Jesus' people, living between the now but not yet, a people who trust in the Lord through everything, everything, that life has to offer us. That everything that life will throw at you. We pray, Psalm 57, verse 6, have a look there. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed in, down in, de- in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O oh God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul, awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Friends, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of hardship, we have a God who is still worthy to be praised. We have a God who is steadfast and in whom we can take refuge. Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that, as Paul reminds us, in Romans chapter 8, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you that this is true for us as it was true for him. Help us to find our hope and our joy in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this, this period of time as we live as saved people, but people who have not yet seen our salvation in full. We pray that you would help us to praise you, Lord, among the nations, to sing of you among the peoples. We pray that we would praise your great love reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness that reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. In the name of your Son, Amen.